So uh, stories have the ability to shape us. The best stories that are told today, I want to tell you why those stories are the best stories. Like why we love those stories so much. Because they build to a point of hopelessness. Like these stories build up to a, a climax where it seems like there are no answers. And then, at the midst, in the moment of hopelessness, at the last minute, a solution appears that nobody expected. The solution just comes out of nowhere, and all of a sudden now, what seemed hopeless, now there's actually hope. Like now something can be fixed, right? So, uh, so the you know, recent blockbuster series of movies, The Avengers, they build to this point of hopelessness. I'm sorry, y'all, you all, you're going to get a lot of spoilers today. I just want to prepare you for that. If you, these movies are fairly old, so if you haven't seen them yet, uh, I, I just don't know what to tell you. I'm going to ruin them for you, though. So, uh, so, uh, so in The Avengers, something happens. Uh, this character, Thanos, he snaps his finger, and immediately half of all life in the universe is gone, and it is, like, hopeless. There's like, as the the people watching the story, you're like, there cannot be an answer. But then you watch, and seemingly, out of nowhere, a solution appears. A solution. In fact, it's funny. One of the characters in the story, uh, he can he can like see the future. He can see all possible futures and this kind of stuff. And he says, one out of fourteen million futures, one of them actually has a solution where we can win. There's only one of them. And so, like, this idea that it's utterly hopeless unless certain things happen. This, that's the concept that's there. And then, of course, you know, it's a movie, and so they win at the end, right? Like, that's, you just get that. Uh, Lord of the Rings, you have the small armies of Middle-earth, and they go to the gates of Mordor, and there are, they are outnumbered by the armies of Mordor. There's no chance that they stand any hope of doing anything. They just want to create some time for Frodo to go throw the ring, and like, to melt the ring, right? That's like, that's what they're trying to do, but it's seemingly hopeless when these armies go up against the armies of Mordor. They don't, they don't even know if uh, Frodo's like on the other side. They don't even know if he's inside like trying to do anything. They're just hoping, right? So you have the seemingly hopeless thing. Harry Potter. Harry dies. Like he, he dies. Like nobody knows what's going to happen. The hero of the story is dead. The only one, the, the child of prophecy who could hope to defeat the forces of evil, he dies. And then all of a sudden the solution comes out of nowhere and we find out he was faking it, right? Like this is the concept that we get. Star Wars. The rebels, like they have this last ditch effort against the empire. And then they get into this last ditch effort and they end up in an ambush. And then on top of that, Luke is like uh, there inside uh, with, with the emperor and with Darth Vader. And he's supposed to go like turn Darth Vader. And that's like their only hope. But Darth Vader won't turn. And then the, the emperor is about to kill Luke in this moment of hopelessness. And then Darth Vader all of a sudden has a change of heart. And then he is like able to defeat the emperor, right? This is like these stories, these stories all build to this point of hopelessness. And then all of a sudden, there is a solution. I want to submit to you that we tell and retell and retell stories like this for two specific reasons. Number one, we have hardwired into us a desire to see good defeat evil. 
Like that's just, that's kind of like our souls are wired to see this take place. But number two, I want to tell you, like I'd submit that we tell and retell and retell these specific kinds of stories because we have been culturally shaped, whether we acknowledge it or not, we have been culturally shaped by a specific Jewish story that has been told again and again and again. And it's based on an event that happened over 3,000 years ago. And that is the story of the Exodus. The story where Israel is delivered from the hands of evil. And God shows up when there seems to be no hope. And he actually provides an answer. He provides a solution. So why, why is this so important? Why is this story? You know, this story, it would shape the Jewish people over years. This is the story that they kept coming back to. Whenever they were in the midst of hopelessness, they would keep coming back and say, God, you delivered us out of Egypt. God, you delivered us out of Egypt. Look back to that time when you brought us through the, the Red Sea and you delivered us out of Egypt. This is where they got their hope from. And so when Israel, they, they had to be reminded of God's character. Well, what did they tell yourselves? What did they tell themselves? What did they repeat? They said, uh, the Lord delivered you from Egypt. When Israel was coming up against a challenge, what did they say? They said, the Lord delivered you from Egypt. When Israel had to be called to repentance, what did they say? They said, the Lord delivered you from Egypt. When Jesus comes on the scene, you know, it's actually interesting. Some of the gospel writers, as they're writing about Jesus, they use the framework of the Exodus to tell their story about Jesus. As they recount events to us, They use the Exodus as a way to tell the story. In fact, in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration and he's talking about what's going to happen in the future and he uses the word Exodus to describe what's going to happen to him. He literally says, I'm about to have an Exodus where I'm going to be drawn from earth. I'm going to die and then I'm going to raise from death and I'm going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. All of this is, is, is built off of this idea that happened over 3,000 years ago. And so God's rescue of Israel, it actually is the most important event in the Old Testament, and it prepares us for what Jesus was going to do in the New Testament, and it wires into us this sense, this, this story that builds to a point of hopelessness, but then God shows up and provides a solution where there was no solution. So more than anything, the passage today shows us what God's answer is to hopelessness. Our passage today shows us what God's answer is to hopelessness. So, uh, you know, in our story, God, he directs the people right up to the edge of the Red Sea, and then he has Moses tell the people what is about to happen. So Exodus 14.3 says this. It says, Pharaoh, he's going to say, Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. So, uh, so Pharaoh's going to notice, hey, the people, they've gone up to the edge of the Red Sea. They have nowhere else to go. They can't really go around at this point. So they're just kind of at the edge. They can't move that much. And so I have an opportunity. And so, so Pharaoh's going to take note of that opportunity, Exodus 14, 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. The Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh. I will have victory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So at the outset, it becomes really clear what is happening is that God is specifically orchestrating everything that's about to take place. Like, God led the Israelites to what seems like a long way around through their journey to lead them to kind of this dead end. 
Like they're at the edge of this Red Sea. They have nowhere else to go. And this is certainly not like tactically advantageous for the Israelites. And then God, he puts it in Pharaoh's heart to actually challenge him one more time. As if 10 times wasn't enough, Pharaoh, one more time, it arises in his heart because the Lord makes it arise to go and take the people. And so nothing that happens in the events that follow, nothing that happens happens without God's intentional orchestration. And Moses knows ahead of time, this is the Lord's plan. Like Moses, Moses has it in his head. The Lord says, hey, I've, I've already worked all of this out. It's going to happen. And for what purpose? Well, the purpose is God's actually going to defeat Pharaoh in a mighty way. So, so what's interesting is Israel, when they go to take the land, as we fast forward now years and years and years ahead, when Israel actually goes into the land and they meet nations that talk about what the Lord did, those nations, they don't talk about the plagues. Like the plagues were actually very interesting to us. We dug into those. They were, it was amazing what God did. But those nations, they don't talk about the plagues. They talk about what's about to happen right here. They talk about how God brought the Israelites through the Red Sea and then simultaneously destroyed the Egyptians. So, so uh, Yahweh, the Lord, he essentially says, this event is the event that will prove my power, not just to you and not just to the Egyptians, but to the whole earth. So, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So, so at the core of the change that happened inside of the Egyptians is the debate about who the Israelites would be slaves to. You see, because every time Yahweh says, let my people go that they may serve me, it's the same word that's used for slavery. So the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt, and, and Yahweh's saying, they've been slaves to you for so long, let my people come be slaves to me. Let them come serve me. They've been serving you for so long. Well, when Pharaoh notices, he says, wait a minute. He took those people away. Those people used to belong to me. They used to exist for my purpose. They used to make my name great. Why are they going over towards Yahweh? And so Pharaoh actually, like, their God may have shamed us. Like, he looks at Israel and he says, their God may have shamed us, but you know what? They still, they still exist for my purposes. I'm going to make them work for my purposes. And so verse 6, so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So what, what is this? This is a powerful, destructive, conquering force. Like uh, the, the, the chariots of Egypt, they, they were built specifically. This is how Egypt was a, able to become such a great nation because of the warfare that these chariots were built for. What they could accomplish, nobody could match up to these chariots. And this is, we, we have to think, like 600 chariots. Uh, like this is the heart of Pharaoh's army. He's kind of going all out to get these people back. And so, so uh, you know, the Egyptian military over the years, they figured out, they live in this very dry terrain, and they figured out how to take advantage of that dry terrain. And so, uh, so they go out to get the Israelites. Now remember, we're dealing with about 600,000 men in Israel. So 600 chariots versus 600,000 men. But 
but these men have swords. Like, that's, that's all they're armed with, right? And we read that last week. All they have is swords, and, and you have chariots coming up against them. I just want you to understand, like, what's happening. This is like uh, somebody with a knife going up against Apache helicopters. This is, this is tanks rolling up against Egypt, and they think they're going to take them down with their swords. That's essentially what we're dealing with. The, the level of military might against each other and, and so Egypt is coming up against Israel in verse 8. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel and overtook them encamped at the sea. So, so what's happening here? The stage. The stage is perfectly set. Israel has nowhere else to go. They're up against the sea. Uh, you know, the Egyptians are up behind them. They're ready to overtake them. And so now there's kind of this lull in the story where uh, you, have, you have the Egyptians, they're prepared, they're maybe setting up camp. The Israelites are already uh, camped and, and the, the things are about to, to go a little crazy. So this is the moment. This is the moment where hopelessness becomes evident. Like this is Luke Skywalker about to die at the hands of the emperor. This is the small armies of people of Middle Earth going up against the armies of Mordor. Like all of this is happening. This moment of hopelessness where you wonder how can they possibly get out of this? And then the the Israelites actually recognize it. In verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. So normally when you talk about lifting up your eyes, you're talking about see what God is doing. Like look at all the amazing, get, a, get an idea of the bigger picture. This is not all that's happening. When the uh, Israelites lift up their eyes, what do they see? They see their sure destruction. They see something that is certain to them. There's no way they are going to make it through this in their mind. Like, what do you experience in this moment? You've been pulled out of Egypt. You know how Egypt works. You know how slavery worked, even though it wasn't great. Even though you cried out to the Lord in the midst of that, you knew how it functioned. But now you get out here to the edge of the Red Sea, and you don't know what comes next. And then you look. And you see the armies of Pharaoh, the chariots. You know that you don't stand a chance against them. And and, and so we actually start seeing Israel. They have a a frenzy of expressions of hopelessness. It starts to come out of them. uh, so, So, like... You know, as we look at what happens in the next verse, the next few verses, you might start to wonder, um, did they forget what the Lord had promised them? Like, come on, Israel. Did they forget what the Lord had already done? Like, do things seem hopeless? Yeah, sure, but, but are they without hope? No, they're not without hope. Not at all. What did God say? God said, I will have glory over Pharaoh. Yet what they do is they give more weight to the hopelessness of their situation. And you know what? I think, like, as we get ready to to watch what's going to happen, we tend to stand in judgment of Israel and say, well, they should have just known who God was. Like, didn't they see him do all the things that he did before? How how could they get afraid at this point? But I want you to try to, to understand them, understand their situation, and see if maybe you might respond in the same ways that they do. So Exodus 14.10 goes on and says, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. We're actually going to watch five different responses that come from Israel. The first one's good. The first one is, we have no solution, therefore God has to do something. 
Therefore, God has to do something. And so in their first solution, they know they need God. That's their first response. This is actually the, the one silver lining we see out of all their responses. Because they say, you know what? We saw the same thing happen in Egypt. We were hopeless. And then we cried out to the Lord in our desperation. He actually like sent Moses to deliver us. And then he started doing all of these crazy things in Egypt. So this is a good thing. However, like that's the only good thing that we see in their response. Because it goes on in verse 11. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? They look at Moses and and they say, what have you done? We are hopeless. We are going to lose our lives out here. And so the, the second thing, the second response that they have is they doubt. So yeah, they might have cried to the Lord, but they are certain that things are not going to turn out well for them. So they doubt goes on and it says, what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? What Moses, Moses, what is this thing that you have caused? How could you let this happen? Our lives are now destroyed. We are surely going to die because of what it is that you've done. And so the third thing, their third response is that they blame as they're coming out of Egypt as they're up against the Red Sea, as they look at both the Red Sea, which is certain death on one side, and the Israelite or the, the Egyptians, which is certain death on the other side, uh, they're, they're crowded in, they're pressed in by these things, and so they're inclined to blame Moses. Verse 12. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. So, uh, so interestingly enough, there was a moment when the, the foreman of the Israelites, um, you know, the first time that Moses went to Pharaoh and he goes up and he says, let my people go and that we may serve the Lord. And Pharaoh goes, well, if you have time to serve the Lord, you must have time to work harder. And Pharaoh's, Pharaoh makes their work much harder, right? And so then the foremen say that one time, they say, leave us alone. Let us serve in Egypt. Why have you done this? And so they're hearkening back to this. But, but we forget like, how many times in the book of Exodus do we read about the people crying out to the Lord, saying, Lord, deliver us. Lord, our labor is so hard. Lord, draw us out of what we're in the midst of. But the thing that they remember, the thing that they remember is that one time that they told Moses that they were right. right? So the, the fourth thing that they do, their fourth response is that they conveniently revise history. They conveniently revise history to fit their narrative, to justify themselves. Verse 12 goes on and it says, For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Or is that, that word serve, it keeps coming up and keeps coming up. This is what they're saying, essentially. It would be better for us to exist for the purpose of making Pharaoh's name great than it would be for us to exist for the purpose of making Yahweh's name great. It would, better, it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians. So the fifth thing that happens, their fifth response, is they lose track of their purpose. So we might look at them and say, how could they? Like, how could they let this happen? How could they let this be their perspective? Like, and we might be inclined to that, but part of the goal of even Old Testament narrative when it, it recounts events towards us is it wants us to see ourselves as 
the characters, to get, uh, to get us to empathize with the characters of the story. So before you go criticizing the Israelites, I want you to ask yourself a question. How often do I respond like Israel is responding here? So, so there are some things that might be worrisome on the horizon for our country. You might say something like, you know what? America is no longer a predominantly Christian country. And there's like a hard reality that it may never be again. Now, I'm not, I'm not giving up hope that the Lord could not do something fantastic, but just watching the way that cultural change is taking place, especially over the last 10 years, it's, it's high possibility that, that America might not be a Christian country ever again. So what do you do with that? Do you get frantic? Do you go into a frenzy? Do you start like calling out against all the people who are making this happen, who are taking away these things? You know, don't get frantic. Don't be weighed down by hopelessness. This is not a situation of hopelessness. God is still your God. Maybe he can create change in people now in a way that he couldn't when it was culturally convenient to be a Christian. Maybe God can actually bring some good of this. So you know what? God is still your God and he knows what he's doing. So trust him. Uh, maybe you look at everything that's happening with the coronavirus as like it seems like step-by-step uh, step more and more freedoms are taken away. So they start with telling you to wear a mask, and then they start telling you when and you, you can and can't gather for church, and then they move on to telling you like exactly how you have to go to school and how you have to run your business, and then you start to wonder, like they, they're taking more and more of our freedoms away. You might get frantic about that. You might get worried about that, but, but the call is don't get frantic. Don't be weighed down by hopelessness, even if they do all of the things that you're thinking do, they'll do. God is still your God, and he knows what he is doing, so trust him. But, but you might say, but, but more and more people are trying to remove Christian influence from society. Uh, they're, they're doing more and more things to get rid of us. Okay, don't get frantic. Like, don't let hopelessness dictate your words to those people. God is still your God, and he knows what he's doing, so trust him. You might say, uh, but don't you see what's happening in the world right now? Like, things are getting really bad, guys. Really, I've never, I, in my life, I've never seen uh, so many things happen so close to each other that are, have such societal impact than what I've seen in the last three months. And I'm sure many of you are in the same position. Never seen things packed this closely together. Don't you see what's happening? It's worse than we've ever seen. Okay, don't get frantic. Don't let hopelessness determine your decisions. God is still your God, and he knows what, you're do, what he's doing, so trust him. You know what? I would wager that we all have, probably have something on our horizons that make us frantic. And it can push us to a place of hopelessness. So, so then, our job here is not to criticize the Israelites for giving in to their hopelessness, but our job is to understand how we might be inclined to do the very same things that they do, and that way we might actually respond to the call that God gives. So how does God respond to such hopelessness? What does he do? Well, Moses knows. Moses knows because he's seen God work before, and so Moses speaks to the Israelites a word of gospel hope. He gives them good news. 
Verse 13. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. And see, watch. He's saying, watch the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. You know what? It's, it's very important. We have to be careful how we read this. It's very important that we don't read this as like a sort of pull, your, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps sort of call. Like just do better. Like don't talk so much and get your act together. We might be inclined to look at it like that. It's almost, it's really important too that we don't see it primarily as a rebuke. Like we think Moses is calling out to the Israelites and he's rebuking them. This is something actually very different. In the middle of Israel's hopelessness, this is what Moses is doing. He's giving them good news. He's giving them good news. He gives them words of grace, words of love, words of tenderness based on who he knows that God is. So he says, fear not. This, this word to fear not, this is a word of assurance. It is spoken when uh, God shows up in Scripture. When, the, when you see that the angel of the Lord is present, God shows up in these ways. Every time the angel of the Lord shows up, he says, fear not. Do not be afraid. Have assurance. God is present and he will work for you. So no, 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 there's no need to fear. I see why you're afraid, but that's not necessary. That's what this word from Moses is. And then he says, stand firm. Stand firm. See the salvation. So he says, stand firm. You know what? You're not going to fight. You're not going to stand up against. You're not going to use your swords against the Egyptians. But, but you know what you're also not going to do? You're not going to flee in fear from the Egyptians. You're going to stand firm. You don't need to go to your battle. You don't need to do anything. You need to stand ready. But stand ready for what? See the salvation of the Lord. What he's saying is watch. Observe. God is going to rescue you. He is going to deliver you. The word that he uses for salvation, the literal Hebrew word is Yeshua. It's Jesus. That's Jesus' name. Jesus' name is Yeshua. What he's saying is stand firm and watch the Yeshua of the Lord. Watch the salvation of the Lord. When Jesus is named, when he gets his name, it's named after this. Jesus is named after this event where God shows up in a powerful way. Watch him do it. And the proclamation of good news ends in verse 14 and says, you have only to be silent. Your frenzy, your fear, it's causing you to say things. It's causing you to do things that you really don't want to do. It's causing you to doubt. So you know what? God's got this. Settle yourself. You have only to be silent. You know what? Moses, he gives these words of good news to the Israelites because he understands something core about Yahweh's character here. And this is why he offers the words that he does. And this is what he understands. God loves to rescue those who see no hope. This is something core to who God is. He loves to rescue those who who see no hope. So in the middle of their frenzy, they were afraid that God had lost control of the situation, and Moses reminds them of God's character. He reminds them of God's promises. God steps into our hopelessness, and he provides hope. So how does he do this? Verse 15. 
The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel, Go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So, so God says, Don't be frenzied. Don't be frantic. Just be faithful. To this point, you just had to do what I say. Guess what you have to do now? You just got to do what I say. So, um, so think back to go. He said, you have only to be silent. So we need to be careful with this idea of you have only to be silent because we might hear you have only to do nothing. Uh, and that's not the case here, right? He gives them some commands after they are told they are only to be silent. What, what it's actually saying is it's, it's not like sit back and keep yourself entertained while God does what he's going to do, distract yourself. No, that's not what it's saying at all. It's saying in your hopelessness, God is going to speak. But if you are frantic, you're not going to be able to hear what he has to say. So you need to be silent so that when God speaks and tells you to act, you can actually hear what he says and respond. Because they have some commands to obey. They need to walk forward. That's insane. The sea, you know how, like, so we're not just talking about walking into water at this point. Uh, We're also talking about, like, walking into what's underneath the water. There's like mud and gunk and all of this stuff that you can get stuck in. It is not a safe thing to walk on the soil that exists underneath the water. But they need to go forward. That's what they're told. And and Moses, he needs to stretch out his hand to split the sea. And then they need to keep walking through even as they get to the midst of it. And so Moses, he reminds them of God's character and how God loves to save those who see no hope. He reminds them of all of these things. And the Israelites have only to do what he says, and salvation will happen. So this verse, Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. God is saying, I hold all of your hope. I hold all of your future. So let go of the frenzy that is in your soul and just trust me. Be faithful to whatever it is that he's already called you to. Settle your soul in trust of him by doing the things that you know he's told you to do. That's your portion. Your portion is not to fight against what's happening. Your portion is faithfulness. What has God called you to do? Do it. Trust him through simply doing what you know he's called you to do. And from there, we actually watch it happen. So uh, Exodus 14, 22, we'll kind of move through this ending part quickly. Verse 22, it says, Uh, The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. So, dry ground. So just so you understand, uh, sand that is saturated is like quicksand. You sink into it very fast. So uh, we did not have sand on the banks of the Mississippi River, but when I grew up along the Mississippi River, we would go uh, fishing, and when the tide was down, the mud was incredibly wet, and I did not know any of how this worked, and so I'm out fishing, and then I take a step into where it is not dry, and I get covered in my leg all the way up to here. And then how do you get out of that? Well, surely you can't like push down and like lift because then you start to sink into the mud. This is what happens. I lost a shoe that day. 
Um, so, so this is like, this is what is happening. It's actually not, it's not safe for them to walk onto the place where the, the, the water has been saturating. So how frightening would it be to like walk forward into this muddy mess, into this quicksand? And if they get stuck, like any time they're moving forward, if they get stuck, then Egypt catches them. But then like, imagine you're in the middle. You're like right in the middle of all the Israelites. And you're watching people walk forward in front of you and you don't, like, don't understand what's happening. They're starting, they're like moving along. And then you walk, you take your first step on where the water used to be. And it's like rock solid. And then you take your another step and it's rock solid. And you walk all the way out into the middle of the sea and you get out there and it's still rock solid. That's what these people are experiencing. So I imagine that moment where they take these steps. It's like something goes off in their head and they go, oh yeah, I guess God really does know what he's doing. I guess he really does have this. I imagine this moment of thankfulness coming over each Israelite as they take that step on the dry ground. So verse 24, it says, In the morning, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. How? He clogged their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So I want you to picture this for a second. The whole mass of Israel is moving through the sea, and you got your very last straggler who's kind of slow to everything at the very end of the crowd. And they are walking along with the Israelites. And as this person's foot is lifting up from the ground and taking the next step forward, water is seeping into the soil behind them. And the mud and muck is rebuilding as they make their way through. And then the Egyptians start pursuing. Now, the Egyptians know this is a bad idea. They already know that they've made a huge mistake. Because, not because of who the Lord is, mind you, but because they only know how to do warfare on dry ground, on solid terrain. That's, that's how they function. That's how these chariots function. The moment that they start to get into the mud and the muck, their chariot wheels start to get clogged up. And the officers go, oh no, like we've really made a mistake. So they're like, we need to turn around. And this is the reason that they give. They said that the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They notice because they look at that mass of people and that mass of people is moving freely. And their chariots, which are supposed to be the most amazing warfare machines in the known world, are getting clogged up as they go into the sea. And then it's interesting. So all the promises of the plagues um, often say, I'm going to do this against the Egyptians so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Literally, I am Yahweh. The Egyptians get out there into the middle of the mud and the muck and go, oh no. And they start to turn around. And what do they say? They know that the Lord did it. They know. They say his name. It's not uh, the Israelites have done this. It's not we've made a huge mistake, although that's part of what's going on. It's the Lord is fighting against us. So at this moment, they say his name. They acknowledge who he is. And so verse 27, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. 
The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. I imagine even as they were turning around, they already knew. There's no way we're getting out of this. We're going to get stuck. We're going to, the, the sea is going to overtake us. And so Moses does it. He stretches out his hand. But verse 29, the people of Israel walked on dry ground. So they were stuck. They were stuck in this situation of certain death. They are up against the edge of the Red Sea. On, on one side, if they walk into the sea, they're certainly going to die. And if, on the other side, if they stay where they are, the Egyptians are going to overtake them, and they're certainly going to die. Like, they're in a situation of hopelessness. And what does God do? God destroys the Egyptian army. He opens up the sea. He clears out all the water from the ground so that when you step on it, it is solid, and they walk across, the only thing that they had to do was just listen to his direction, and he rescued them. God loves to rescue those who see no hope. So verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. So, uh, so if we go all the way back to the, the beginning of this story of the Exodus, these events that happened, go all the way back. You remember the Hebrew midwives? Uh, the, the women who saved, after, after Pharaoh had given the order that the, the first four, the males should all be killed. The Hebrew midwives worked to save some of the children, right? They worked really hard to make sure that they could save the children. And why did they do it? Because they feared the Lord. Because they feared the Lord. So, what's interesting, I would just want to pull in what we learned about what does it mean to fear God. What we learned from that time. And so, so we're just, we're revisiting something we covered then, but I want to just talk about what is the fear of God. There are four things that represent the fear of God. First of all, when I fear God, I understand His power. That's the very first thing that it says here. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. Number two, when I fear God, I obey him. I obey him because I know like the words that he has, like if I'm going to be saved, if I'm going to do what I need to do, the only thing I can do is listen to him. Number three, when I fear God, I am genuinely grateful. That sense of thankfulness when I step onto the dry ground. And number four, when I fear God, I trust him. I trust him. I know that he's the most powerful. I know that he's got this. The idea that we get here, remember what we said, God's bringing uh, people who used to be slaves out of Egypt, but what he has to do is he actually has to train Egypt out of these people. He's shaping them into the kind of people that are actually going to be a blessing when they get into the land. And so he needs to shape them into people who are actually going to trust him. He brings them through the Red Sea to start shaping them into that kind of people. People who believe him, people who trust him, people who fear him. And so he does this by meeting their hopelessness. And in the midst of their hopelessness, he makes a way for them. Or as we've been saying, God loves to rescue those who see no hope. This truth gets wired into the Israelite mind so that when uh, people are writing scripture years later, they're hearkening back to the time when God saved Israel. So what? So what? Rest in this good news. God wins. 
rest in this good news. Let this be a place of rest for your soul. God wins. Like from this point forward, God's people would look to this story, this event that took place, and they would find from it hope in the midst of hopelessness. They would find purpose in the midst of persecution. They would find strength in the middle of their suffering. You know, it's no surprise, actually, uh, early American slave owners, they edited the Bible so that this story could not be read by slaves. They took this out of Scripture because they knew it was powerful for those in the midst of hopelessness. They knew it would say something about God's character that he would choose to deliver a slave people out of the hands of their masters. And so they took it out of the Bible. This event was so powerful and becomes so formative for everybody who reads it. This event sets the stage for Jesus to come back and extend God's salvation to the whole world. So here was our hopelessness, right? We were pressed in on every side. Our enemy, Satan, he lied to us, he enticed us, and he was seeking to destroy us. We gave in to our own desire to be our own God, to say that our way must be better than God's way. We seek to destroy ourselves. And even if we would run to God, we run to him as people who betrayed him, as people who defiantly and arrogantly told him that we know better than he does. And you know what? God can't ignore that kind of arrogance. So what does he do? Hebrews 3, verses 3 and 4. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Jesus came. God in the flesh, the builder of the house, and extended salvation. How? By giving up his body to death on a cross and becoming the payment for our arrogance. By showing his power over Satan through his self-sacrificial love and defeating the hold of every dark spiritual power on our lives and extending to us the hope that when we do run to God, he will joyfully welcome us as a father welcomes his own children. So I'm not here this morning to tell you that God is going to magically fix whatever in your life seems most hopeless. I'm here to tell you that no matter the things that make you frantic and frenzied, no matter what hopelessness you see, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, God has already rescued you from your greatest source of hopelessness. He has already defeated the strongest enemies that stand against you. The magnitude to which he has to, of what he has saved us from is so much greater than any kind of hopelessness that would stand against us. So that in any hopelessness that we face, we can rest in him because we know he has rescued us from our greatest hopelessness. So what, number two? In your temptation towards frenzy be faithful so this is this is where your rest and your trust in the lord works itself out it works itself out in simple faithfulness 
This is Jesus' call, right? He says, hey, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Look at the flowers of the field and look at how they're arrayed in splendor. Not even Solomon was as arrayed as nice as these flowers were. Will not your God also take care of you? Be anxious about nothing. In your temptation towards frenzy, be faithful. This is Moses' reminder. This is why he said, you have only to be silent. You know what? Frenzy can lead us to say and do things that are incredibly unhelpful and quite frankly can make us look like the rest of the world looks. It can lead us to treating others who disagree with us as second-class citizens. It can lead us to name-calling on social media. It can lead us to putting all of our worries out there for the world to see, to see how anxious we really are can lead us to express concern or stress, maybe even when our political desires aren't met, like that's what we're seeing today. So so should we use our voice for constructive discussion? Yes, absolutely. Should we stand up for justice when justice is being treaded upon? Yes, absolutely. But also, what does Christ call us to do? Consider that maybe we might be wrong sometimes and own up to it when we are. Yes. Try to understand your neighbor who feels like they've been disenfranchised by society. Yes. Show grace towards those who disagree with you about face masks. Yes. (laughs) Fighting for what is true is important. But also, that we would love the people with whom we are having discussions. We are not fighting them because our war is not with those people. A display of our trust and rest in God in the days and months, and I would argue even years ahead, is going to be most important. Most important. I'm telling you, I'm I'm just trying to evaluate what's happening in our culture, what's happening in our world. Tensions are rising. And as people look at the church, the display of our trust and our rest in God is going to become most clear in how faithfully we exercise the ethic to love our neighbor. Like, that's how people are going to know that we actually trust things that they don't, they don't trust. They don't know how to trust. We trust the Lord. The Lord's got this. And so, you know what? I can love somebody who disagrees with me and still be okay. So who is my neighbor? Be careful here. The anti-fascist is your neighbor. The alt-right activist is your neighbor. The NRA activist is your neighbor. The immigrant, whether they're legal or illegal, is your neighbor. The Trump supporter is your neighbor. The Biden supporter is your neighbor. The conspiracy theorist is your neighbor. The protester is your neighbor. The one who refuses to protest is your neighbor. You know what? There's a kind of Red Sea in front of us in our country. And the world is telling us to obey by its terms. That you fit neatly into your camp and you hate everybody who is on the other side. But Christians, when we exercise the ethic, faithfully, quiet faithfulness, ethic to love our neighbor, we defy the world's categories and we display that we don't need to trust those things. We trust our Lord. We trust the Lord who delivers so uh, so the call this morning, you know, so you're like, how do you get the love your neighbor out of the Red Sea? Well, love your neighbor is simply the faithful thing that we're called to do. 
That's the thing that Jesus calls us to do. And as we exercise our faithfulness in the midst of all of these things that are happening, we reveal that we trust him more than we trust ourselves. We trust him more than we trust the world around us. And that's what we're called to, to simple trust. So uh, would you pray with me and then we will close with a song. Your hand is mighty. You have delivered us from things that we had no hope of being delivered from. God, we stood hopeless. Lord, and some of us, we we don't even recognize the the degree to which our hopelessness existed, but God, as we read your word, we understand that it was very great. That we were pressed in on all sides, and yet Jesus came and made a way for us. Actually made it possible for us to walk towards you, to actually claim ownership of a relationship with you because of what you had accomplished, that we could be accepted because our Father loved us. This is an amazing thing that Christ has accomplished for us. And so as a result, Lord, you you call us to simple faithfulness. Lord, in in the days and months and, and years ahead, the best way that we exercise that faithfulness is through the way we display love of God and love of neighbor. And Holy Spirit, we need your help to do this. So Holy Spirit, would you do your work inside of us to enthrone God on our hearts? To set aside whatever idols might have been lifted up that we might be faithful that we might trust, that we might fear God and believe. Lord, we trust you to do all of this. And we pray in Jesus' name.